Uh, Lord Jesus, I, first of all, I do just thank you uh, for John and Emily and all of our children's church workers each week uh, who, who love on the body by serving in that way. Uh, may you give them, again, just overwhelming amounts of grace and patience, Lord. Uh, may they just be wonderful examples to these kids. May they love them well during this time, and may the kids experience your presence. Uh, Lord, my, my prayer is exactly the same for us as adults in here, that we would experience the presence of our King, those words that we just sang, the great I am, you are not some distant God who is so great and over there, but you, you are the great I am, the, the one that, as, as Miss Cheryl shared, uh, hordes of armies just trembled in fear because of you, yet you make your presence known to us this morning. You desire to come and speak to us. So Lord, we invite you come. This is, I mean, it's your house. We're your people. This is your time. It feels weird to invite you. But Lord, we want to have a heart that desires to hear from you. So come this morning, we pray. Speak to us. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we started a, a series last week called Back to the Basics. Uh, really what this is, Back to the Basics, is Back to the Basics of Theology. Theology can be one of those scary words. It feels like people that wear ties and dress coats all the time, they're, they're the only ones allowed to sit in stuffy rooms and talk about theology. But the truth is, we all have a theology. Theology simply means the study of God, our beliefs about who God is. And so I want to get back to the basics, talking about these foundational beliefs that we hold about who our God is. So what we're, what we're using to kind of walk through this is the Christian Missionary Alliance, a denomination that we're a part of, our statement of faith, 11 statements that declare who God is and his purposes for us. And so we're, each week, we're just going to walk through one of the statements of faith and just break it down, try to put it uh, in, in an accessible way. Uh, the way that somebody taught me was putting the cookies on a lower shelf. Some of the words that they use in some of these theological statements are pretty heady, and so just trying to bring them down to where we can all grab a hold of it. Because in the end, the way that we view God, who God is to us, determines everything else in life. Whether we believe he is good and trustworthy or not. Whether we believe there is no God. or All of these things are foundational to who we are. And so what we want to do is just make sure we make it as clear as possible. Here's the foundational beliefs that we hold as a church and I, I hope you hold, if not, I would love to have these conversations with you. If there's parts that you hear and you go, yeah, I don't know about that, or I was taught something different, I'd love to talk with you. I'm not going to try to prove you wrong. I'm not, like, nothing like that. I would just love to have these conversations to see how can we move forward together. Does that make sense? That's really the point of these. These, these statements aren't dividing lines. Here's how we kick people out if they don't agree with this. This is one of those things that go, man, if we hold these things in common, there's nothing that can separate us. These are the most important things. These are the things that tie us together and make us a family. Nothing can separate us if we have these things in common. So last week, we, we looked at the first of a statement of faith. It says, there is one God who is infinitely perfect, existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one God. Culture has always thrown other options at us, and they used to actually have names of the different gods and ways you worshipped. Now we just have kind of these kind of cultural norms that can become idols, but God has been clear from the beginning, there is one God and it is me. I am the one who created you. I am the one who saved you. I am the one who provides and sustains for you. Nothing else. There is one God. 
infinitely perfect. His perfection knows no bounds. He has never made a mistake. He has never been late. He has never made a wrong choice. He is infinitely perfect. And he exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm not going to go through the whole thing on the Trinity again. Like it's, it's a deep topic. And what we talked about last week, there's nothing in nature you can point to and go, the Trinity is exactly like this. It's one thing, but three things all at the same time. There's nothing in nature. It's a profound mystery, and it's a beautiful mystery. God exists. There's, there's one God. He exists in one form, yet three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One of the things that we talked about at the end of the message last time was we were kind of saying, why is the Trinity such an important doctrine? Because if you lose the Trinity, it, 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 because it's so hard for us to grab our heads around, and so people have been trying to dumb it down and going, no, 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 there's God the Father, and then the Holy Spirit, and like Jesus, God created Jesus to send him to earth, or Jesus used to be an angel, and it, there's all kinds of ways that people try to make sense of it. But what always happens is the Father gets lifted up, and the Holy Spirit and the Son get put down. And when you do that, you lose today's statement of faith. You lose the power of the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. He's no longer God with us. He just becomes a really good guy. Or somebody created simply just to go to the cross. Kind of a throwaway. And you lose the power of Jesus being God with us. So let's look at today's statement of faith. Jesus Christ is the true God and the true man. Remember how last week's was pretty short and concise? This one's a mouthful. Jesus Christ is the true God and the true man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He died upon the cross, the just for the unjust, as a substitutionary sacrifice. That's a fun one. And all who believe in him are justified on the grounds of his shed blood. He arose from the dead according to the scriptures. He is now at the right hand of majesty on high as our great high priest. He will come again and establish his kingdom, righteousness, and peace. Chris, take it off the screen for me real quick. You guys all got it memorized? One last look. Here we go. Jesus Christ. I'm kidding. It's, it's a mouthful. But it's one of those things where there's nothing you can really leave out. Like, you would love to make it like one quick snappy sentence, but who Jesus is, is a deep, deep well. And there's so much that you just can't leave out. And so let's begin to break it down kind of statement by statement or thought by thought. And just look at this, the, the word the scripture uses, manifold, many-sided view of who Jesus is. It starts by saying, Jesus Christ is the true God and the true man. This is one of those things that, that we struggle with because there's nothing else in nature you can point to where a whole plus a whole equals a whole. Typically, it's half plus half. You know, we go, okay, he's 50% God, he's 50% man, that equals one whole Jesus, right? That math adds up, yeah? Okay, so here's how math works. If I had an apple and I cut it in half, you'd have two halves, they equal a whole. I think I got that right. Jesus, 100% God, 100% man at the same time. It, it, it bakes your noodle. If you really get to think about it, it's, it's a difficult one. Fully God, fully man. Paul says this about him in Philippians 2 as he's encouraging the church to follow the example of Jesus. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, at his core, his very nature is God on earth. 
He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He is fully God. His very nature, his essence is God in all of his power and all of his glory. Yet Jesus chose in coming down to humble himself, to put on this this pinchable stuff, this flesh, and become like one of us. He, He didn't lose parts of being God, but he did set some aside. There, like there's a, a passage in Matthew where his disciples come up to him and they go, hey, Jesus, so like when is the end going to come? And Jesus goes, I don't know. No one knows that but the Father. He says, not even the Son. And we go, whoa, there was something Jesus didn't know. This was a part of his humbling himself. He was at his very nature, God, but it says he didn't use that as something to his own advantage. He humbled himself and he set parts of his divinity down knowledge of the future and some of these things so that he could live life as fully man as well. Fully God in character, in power, in priorities. He was in lockstep with the Father because he was God, is God. In character, in power, in priorities. Yet he was also fully man. I love that the, the statement of faith says, the true God and the true man. Jesus was fully man as man was originally intended to be. He was sinless and he was fully obedient. He was in perfect relationship and harmony with the Father. Not because he was something different from us, but he was what man was meant to be. Never sinning and in perfect harmony and relationship with the Father. Is this making sense? I know Kim gets it. Again, it can be a hard one to wrap our heads around. And Paul actually warns the, warns the church in Colossae uh, against some of the, the teachings that were coming around at the time that tried to dumb down who Jesus was, to, to put him in a box that we could understand. He says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition and based on the elemental forces of the world and not based on Christ. He says, don't let anyone take, take your minds captive by trying to put it down on, to something where you can fully understand it. He says, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled in him who is the head over every ruler and authority. He says, Jesus Christ in his flesh, like the entire nature of God dwelled inside of him. And Paul was admitting, you're not going to be able to fully understand this. People are going to try to take you captive by dumbing it down. But this is a mystery that you cannot plumb the depths of. He was fully God and fully man. Jesus Christ is the true God and the true man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We should celebrate this one like regularly, like maybe yearly. The winter doesn't have much going on. Maybe we should have like a holiday about this one. Luke chapter one. Then the angel told her, her being Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, and this is a very important question. How can this be? Since I have not been intimate with a man, parents, I'll let you guys deal with that one later. 
The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One will be born to you, to be born to you will be called the Son of God. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's slave, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel left her. The miraculous birth of Jesus. Again, it wasn't that Mary and Joseph just loved each other so much and this guy came out, but this guy, he was a normal guy, but he just figured out the formula and was able to do life pretty well. Jesus, like even his origins were miraculous. That the Holy Spirit put a baby in Mary's stomach. There was no father. She had never been intimate with a man. Again, parents, good luck. He had this miraculous conception. And because of this miraculous conception, like when he calls God his father, he means it in the most literal possible way. His father truly was God. The Holy Spirit puts this baby inside of Mary. And because of that, Jesus is born with no original sin. The, the sin of Adam and Eve that has been passing down from generation to generation, Jesus was born without that original sin, that original guilt that just comes with being human. We live in a sin-stained world because of choices we have made. We are born sinful into this world. The first opportunity we have to make a choice, it will be a sinful, selfish one. You ever met a baby? You have to teach them how to share. You don't have to teach them how to say, mine, mine. We're sinful from birth. D David talks about this in Psalm 51. He says, wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin, for I'm conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned, and I have done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. David was going to look as, as far back as I have existed. I've existed in sin. And, and this is all of our conditions. Hopelessly lost. Sin, sinful from birth. As soon as we can make a choice, it will be a sinful one. That every one of us, can anyone in here go, I've never made a selfish choice, a rebellious choice. I've never broken any of God's commands. I've never like put myself above other people. Any takers on that one? Good for you guys. Look at the self-awareness we have. We have all chosen sin, but Jesus never did. Miraculous birth. Never born with the stain of sin. And as we'll see here in a minute, never choosing sin. Jesus Christ is the true God and true man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He died upon the cross, the just for the unjust, as a substitutionary sacrifice. And all who believe in him are justified on the grounds of his shed blood. Let's break that part down. This is a, this is a huge one. He died upon the cross. You've, you've heard the story. Most of us know the story. Jesus nailed to the cross, dying a sinner's death, beaten tortured, bloodied, killed, murdered on the cross for his own sin? This is an easy one, church. Come on. For his own sin? For whose? Ours. The just for the unjust. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered for sins, not his, but ours, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Why is this idea of Jesus being just, innocent, righteous, so important? Like, here's the thing. You, this is that Jenga tower. You pull that one out, the, literally the entire thing falls apart. Why is this idea of his justness 
so important to us? Not a difficult question. Don't overthink it. Because he, like, didn't deserve, like, all he got. I would never do that to you, only to my daughter. But because he didn't deserve what he got, okay? Hear this. Without the righteousness of Jesus, without him being sinless, if he ever one time chose sin, his death means nothing. He was just another guy who got caught up in a bad situation and got killed. It's happened before and it will happen again. His death means nothing if he has ever chosen sin. But because he is just, because he is righteous, perfect, innocent, he was able to be that substitutionary sacrifice for us. Hebrews 4.15, talking about Jesus and this idea of a high priest, which we're going to touch on later, says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Again, it wasn't that Jesus just came and he was going, nope, I'm just fully God now. Sin can't even touch me. I don't even care about it. I've never even seen a pretty girl. Like, I, you're right, like Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. The, the grossest temptation you can think of, the smallest to the biggest, whatever it was, Jesus was tempted with those things because he was fully man, yet he never once chose sin. And because of that, he was able to be a substitutionary sacrifice. Here's, here's what that means. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, he made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's this idea, you've heard me talk about it before, called the great exchange. Think of a courtroom drama. You and I are standing behind, uh, what is the, the defendant? We're being accused of all of these crimes, and here's the problem. We're guilty of every one of them. And so the judge is giving sentence, and he's saying, guilty, 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 guilty. And just as the gavel's about to come down, Jesus stands up and goes, I did it. Everything that you have just found them guilty of, I did it. I'll take the consequences. I'll take the punishment. I'll take the wrath. Put the guilt on me. And they look and they go, no, 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 Jesus, you did all of this good stuff. You loved people. You helped people. You did miracles. You, you taught people. And he goes, no, no, no. Put that on their tab. I will take all of their guilt. I will take all of the punishment. Put on their credit every righteous thing I've ever done. How would you feel if you were in that? I mean, literally standing there, they've already declared you guilty. The gavel's about to come down. And someone goes, no, no, no. Instead, they've won the lottery. Give them more blessings than they can possibly handle. You would be overwhelmed. Who could do such a thing? Only one that's never sinned themselves. If Jesus was guilty, then all he was doing was taking the punishment he deserved. But he never chose sin. He was perfect, righteous, just. And so he was able to be a substitution, to stand in for us. The Bible talks about, he says, he drank the cup of wrath. Wrath being that like just anger that God has towards our sin. And Jesus drank every drop so that there is nothing left for those of us who walk with him.
There is no guilt. There is no shame. There is no punishment. It says that, that Jesus separated us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. This is the work that he's done on the cross on our behalf. Back in, in first, century Jesus, or first century Israel, they, they used to sacrifice lambs. That was their way of dealing with sin until Jesus came. They would have this perfect, spotless lamb without blemish, without defect, like the most perfect white lamb you could find. And they would take it up to the temple. And what they would do is they would put their hand on the sheep's head, the lamb's head. They would confess all of their sin. And then they would cut the lamb's throat. And we go, whoa, that's pretty gruesome. There's children here. Don't talk about that. Like, think about it. You would have blood all over your clothes. You would have blood all over your hands. And for them, it was this reminder. The wages of sin is death. Something has to die for your sin. And in the Old Testament, God was going, I'm going to kind of hold off judgment for a while. So go ahead and use this lamb. It's like putting your sin onto this lamb and watching it die. It was this very visual reminder of the consequences of your sin. But all it was was kind of like pushing payday off a little bit. A, a lamb could not take our sin for us. But it was this visual reminder of what was to come. Jesus, when he was seen by John the Baptist as he was baptizing in the Jordan River, what did John, John pointed him out, and what did he say about him? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You know that lamb that gets sacrificed so that you don't have to carry your guilt? He's going to do it once and for all. Take away the sin of the world. A substitutionary sacrifice. Is this making sense? Okay. It says, all who believe in him are justified on the grounds of his shed blood. That word justified is incredibly important. It means declared innocent. It's a legal term. Again, go back to that courtroom drama. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Jesus says, I'll take it. And the judge looks at you and says, you're free to go. You are innocent. Walk on out. We have been justified on the grounds of his shed blood. Romans 5, 8, and 9. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, guilty, deserving of death, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified, declared innocent by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Because of the shed blood of that spotless lamb, Jesus, we are now able to stand in the presence of God, to call him Father, to actually talk to him and him talk to us and to walk with him and to receive blessings from him because of the justifying work of Jesus. It uses the term, all who believe in him. And I have to stop and kind of give a little clarity on this. Belief is more than just intellectual acknowledgement. Again, I was kind of poking fun at Christmas earlier, but everybody knows Christmas and Easter, right? Everybody knows, like, whether they come to church or not, oh, that's when Christians gather because Jesus was born and Mary and the whole thing. And then Easter, like, Jesus died and rose again. People will tell you that. Some people believe, yeah, yeah, that probably happened. But belief, this kind of belief, is more than just, I know some facts about it. Another term often used in place of belief in the scriptures is faith, to put your faith in. 
And here's what James says about that kind of just purely intellectual, yeah, 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 that probably happened one day. That's a historical fact. Jesus came and died. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food and and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith from my works. You believe that God is one, that, the first statement of faith. You do well. The demons also believe that and they shudder. Even the demons, the ones that we know are consigned to hell, they believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he died on the cross. Like They would look at it and go, yeah, that happened. And they shudder. They are terrified of it because they don't have faith in it. They're not relying on it for their salvation. Belief that doesn't bring about change is not real belief. If you would, if you, again, you know this story as Americans, most of us grew up hearing this story. If you believe this, yes, Jesus died on the cross, but your life's not different because of that belief, hear me, you don't believe. You know some things, but you don't have faith. Can that faith save you? Can a faith that doesn't produce the fruit of like good work, good living, loving your neighbor, if it's not producing that kind of fruit in your life, it's not faith. In fact, it's dead and it can't save you. So when it says all who believe in him are justified, not just intellectually, those that have placed the weight of their eternity in his capable hands, That is belief. Those that have said, you are going to take care of me today, I'm going to be obedient to you. That is faith. And if it's not resulting in that kind of change in your life, it's not belief and it's not faith. It's something else. And it cannot save you. Things got quiet. Jesus Christ is the true God and the true man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He died upon the cross, the just for the unjust, as a substitutionary sacrifice. And all who believe in him are justified on the grounds of his shed blood. He arose from the dead according to the scriptures, and he is now at the right hand of the majesty on high as our great high priest. Did Jesus die? Yes. Did it work? No. Did he stay dead? No. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but death could not hold him. Peter, just a few short months after Jesus' death and resurrection, is standing before a group, uh, like basically a Jewish mob, and he says one of the gutsiest things that is recorded in all of Scripture. Talking to this mob about Jesus, he says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, Put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Think about that. You're standing in front of a mob of hundreds, if not thousands, and go, you murdered him. You got Rome to help, but you murdered the Son of God. That's a gutsy thing to stand up and say. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Because of Jesus' righteousness, because he had never sinned, 
death didn't stick. He overcame death because he was sinless, because it had no hold on him. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, thinking about this again, and he says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't just raise from the dead for his own good. He said, now everyone who follows me, death cannot hold you as well. Death is no longer the final word. You have been given victory because you are now one with the one that death couldn't touch. He is now at the right hand of the majesty on high as our great high priest. The majesty on high is just a really reverent title for God the Father. The the one that lives in, Shirley read earlier, in unapproachable light, this great and marvelous light. Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high as our great high priest. The writer of Hebrews says, now the main point of what we're saying is this, we do not have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, talking about other kinds of priests that weren't good at their job. We don't have those kinds. We have one who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. In first century Israel, what was the purpose of a high priest? It's a weird one for us now. We don't have temples and priests and that kind of thing, but this was common everyday language for them. What was the purpose of a high priest? What, did a high, what was a high priest's job? To intercede for us. Again, that's a good, big theological word. What does to intercede mean? To go between, to, to stand in the middle and to be the go-between for us. Between who? What a high priest did was they represented two parties. The high priest stood up and he represented Israel to God. He would go in on Yom Kippur, I believe I'm getting my Jewish holy days correct, Uh, the Day of Atonement, and he would go into the Holy of Holies, the place where God literally dwelled. There was this one guy allowed in once a year, and he came in and he said, I'm here to represent all of Israel. And he would say, we sinned and we're sorry. And he would do some of those sacrifices with the lambs that we were talking about. We as a people have sinned and I'm sorry. He represented the people to God. And then he would come out and he would represent God to the people. And he would go, God says we're forgiven. Good news, everybody. It worked. He forgave us. And it was this go-between, representing the people to God and God to the people. But now it says, those, in Hebrews it was talking about, but those high priests weren't very good at their job. They were just regular sinful men like the rest of us. He says, but now we have this great high priest, this one that goes between, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, actually in heaven right now, interceding for us, going between for us. Remember that courtroom scene? The judge is up there about to say, guilty, guilty, guilty. You look on your left, who's your defense attorney? Jesus. He's our advocate. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding, which means going, Father, remember, I covered that one. Yep, they fell down again. They, they chose sin again. I covered that one. Bless them, Lord. And he's coming to us and he's convicting us and he's going, no, 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 remember the father's called you to live a different way. 
He is interceding on our behalf with the Father. He is our advocate, our friend, the one forever on our side. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, continually putting in a good word for us. No, 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 remember, Father, I took that one. Put that one in my tab. Put my righteousness on them instead. Jesus Christ is the true God and the true man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He died upon the cross, the just for the unjust, as a substitutionary sacrifice. And all who will believe in him are justified on the grounds of his shed blood. He arose from the dead according to the scriptures. He is now at the right hand of the majesty on high as our great priest, our great high priest. He will come again to establish his kingdom, righteousness, and peace. So this one we're going to touch on actually in a few weeks. There's a statement that kind of lays out uh, what this will look like a little more clearly. But you can look at Revelation chapter 20 and 21, uh, the, the Apostle Paul kind of getting this vision of, of what the future is going to be like. And it's Jesus literally reigning on this earth. It's Jesus bringing his kingdom, not in some like, hey, guys, keep trying kind of way, but perfectly, as it always should have been, him reigning as the king on this earth, bringing righteousness and peace. First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus all those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This has been meant to be the hope of the people of God. Not just looking back and going, hey, remember that one time he died for our sins. Is that true? Yes. Is that the best news we've ever heard? Yes. But guess what? He is still alive. He is still interceding for us. And he says, and one day, I'm coming back to get you. I will bring my kingdom with me. And you will see every promise I've ever made fulfilled here on the earth. And so Paul of the Thessalonian church says, encourage one another with these words. Look, life is hard right now. A couple people shared earlier just about some difficult things. And we've seen people going through difficult things in our body. And isn't there encouragement with knowing you are not forgotten? Not only is the Lord still working on your behalf, but one day he's going to come and make all things right. Hold on. Just keep going. One day we will hear the trumpet call of God. We will see him riding on a cloud, can't even imagine, and we will be called up to meet him in the air. How many of you like to fly? You ever tried it without a plane? I wouldn't, but we will. We will be called up to meet him in the air and we will see his kingdom come and his will be done. The thing that he told us to pray about from the very beginning, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is one prayer that he will answer. It's just a matter of when. So let's continue to encourage one another until that day. Continue to encourage and to, to walk with one another to be faithful until that day. 
Because Jesus Christ will come again. He will establish his kingdom, his righteousness, and his peace on this earth. These are, these are cornerstone beliefs. Everything that we're going to be talking about in this basics, it's a cornerstone belief. It, it, Jesus called himself the cornerstone, which they all built their own buildings back then. Kenna mentioned that her dad built his own house. Again, anyone else in here claim that? Cheryl. She's like, well, Greg, but yeah. Like, they built their own house. Most of us have not. In this time, everyone built their own house. It was hard to just hire somebody to come in and do it for you. And the first stone laid was called the cornerstone. You had to make sure the cornerstone was level and facing in the right direction and everything was perfect with it because everything else in the house was measured from that stone. That decided the height of the building. That decided whether the walls are square, whether the floor kind of does this or not. It was all measured off the cornerstone. Jesus called himself the cornerstone because going, man, if we have a shaky view of who he is, everything in life will be shaky. If we have a clear view of who he is, as he says he is, everything in life is built off of that. If we have a strong theological foundation, we have a strong foundation for our life. So would you pray with me again? As I'm going to ask the Lord if there's any shakiness in our foundation. If that cornerstone is wonky at all, I'm going to ask him to just straighten it for us. Because everything in life hinges on it. Lord Jesus, we come to you again. We ask that you would, would lead us, that we would have right thinking of who you are that we would see you clearly as you've told us everything we need to know. Would we see you clearly and would it have impact in our lives, God? Again, not just knowledge, but truly this belief, this right belief in who you are that affects every decision we make. It affects the way that we parent, the way that we work, the kind of neighbors we are, the husbands and wives that we are. If we have a right view of you, everything in life moves in that direction. So would you come and just do this work? If there's areas where we're shaky, if there's areas where we've, we've got some stinking thinking and we're believing in the wrong direction, would you through your Holy Spirit just enlighten it, God, I pray. If the foundation's strong, the building is strong. Make our foundation strong in you, I pray, God. In Jesus' name, amen.